chapter 10, and this evening we're going to attempt to do 18 verses. Lord willing, we're going to get through them. That's my goal, that's my notes, so we're going to see where we do actually end up. Beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings, sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are all offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for After saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Lord, we... Don't take lightly the things that are written here. In fact, some of it seems so weighty, it's going to be a little difficult to get our minds around it, Lord, and to understand what it is you're saying here. Obscure things like sacrifices and offerings and things that we just have no context for. Culturally speaking, And Lord, we ask that you would help us to think through these things and understand why what we have here written for us is so monumental, so life-changing. It was a true, true, utter reformation. And out with the old and an in with the new, a changing of the guard. And Lord, help us to see that. 
And then help us to rejoice in the truth that we have this kind of radical salvation available to us, Lord. In your name, amen. Well, if you follow me on Facebook, you knew I got a haircut this week. Because that's, I change my profile picture every time and... That's never going to change. It's just the reality. So I went into the barber, and I've started going to this barber up in Paradise because I work up there now, and I kind of want to do business up there and be, you know, in, the, in and amongst the community. So I go to this old guy. His name's Mel. Mel bought the barber shop from Mel. And it's been Mel's Barbershop for like 85 years or something crazy like that. A long time. The current Mel is also a pastor at a church up in Paradise. And so I always come in and I say, Pastor Mel, how about a haircut? That's what I've been doing. So I come in and I do my thing, Pastor Mel, how about a haircut? He says, sit on down there, Pastor I sit down and he starts doing the stuff and wrapping the thing and I say to him, so what you preaching on this Sunday? Oh, I'm not preaching this Sunday. I'm just just there, just going to worship the Lord. What are you preaching on? I'm struggling. I'm in Hebrews chapter 10. It's the very end of the theological section of the book. Everything else really from chapter 10 verse 19 all the way through the end of chapter 13 is practical exhortation right the kind of stuff if you were to go into just about any other church you want to hear the practical stuff what does this mean to me well the writer of hebrews took 10 chapters before he got there (laughs) well nine and a half to be fair and so I'm talking to Mel and I'm saying, you know, I just kind of want to blaze through these, first, these 18 verses. Some of these people have been there the whole time. They've been following the argument. They know the whole thing. And, and so I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really know exactly what I'm going to do, but I'm pretty much just going to. And he stopped and he spun that chair around. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, you're a minister of God's word. There is no verse to skip through and to race through to get to the next part. God inspired that. You preach that, Pastor. And I'm like, Jimmy Cricket, just want a haircut. I was just just trying to make conversation, you know. I'm going to preach it, I promise. But he starts going into it, and he starts preaching. Now, he doesn't have Hebrews 10 memorized, so he's going to other texts, and he starts preaching all kinds of stuff. And I was in there for close to an hour getting a sermon from old Mel. But I walked out of there going, Lord, thank you for that. You know, I, I needed that, that, just that subtle little adjustment. This is so important. It isn't just he's putting a bow on top of his theological argument. He's bringing everything to a conclusion. And so what we find right here for us in these 18 verses is the summation of everything he said. So this is important. This is the conclusion of his theological treatise. When you write a conclusion for something, 
you sum up and write in the most important way you can everything that you had previously said so that if somebody were to come along and want to just get the most important information, they're going to go to the conclusion and read that and know exactly what your argument was, what your presentation was, what was so important about what you said. That's what we have here. Now we have 18 verses of it. And so I am going to lean a little bit on information that we've already gone through, but that doesn't change the importance of it any less. What the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he is saying, listen, what is the most important thing you Hebrew Christians possessed? As a Jew, worshiping as a Jew, what's the most treasured possession you have? The most important thing that defines you, that that there is nothing else that you could say is higher in terms of its scope, its impact in my life than anything else. What would be that one thing? And you remember the writer to the Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians that they are in Rome and they're struggling with persecution. They're having a hard time enduring the persecution that they're going through. And because of that, some of them are walking away from the faith. So the writer of Hebrews is telling these Jewish Christians the most important thing that defined you as a Jew was one thing, the law of God. That was, that was what defined them. And look what he says here in the very beginning in verse 1. Since the law, the most important thing in your life, the thing that defined your existence, the law was but a shadow. That's jarring language. Not to us just sitting here reading through it. Not to somebody just trying to memorize chapter 10 and get through it. Not even to somebody who's, you know, maybe getting in this and going through the book of Hebrews devotionally. But for somebody who's studying this book and is really following the argument, especially somebody who's Jewish, and I would say even today, this is a grab-you-by-the-shirt-collar passage and shake-you-up verse. He's saying the most important thing that defines who you are is a shadow. Now, here's my shadow right here on the pulpit from the sun shining in the windows behind me. It gives an outline. I can see my haircut here in the, in the shadow. It gives an outline, but there's no detail to it at all. You can see my one ear sticks out a little more than my other. Now you'll always notice that about me. My left ear sticks out a little more. But it's the shadow that tells, can tell you that. But what it can't tell you is if my ears have ever been pierced. The shadow can show you that I have temples right here where my hairline goes up. It can show you where my part is, but it can't tell you what color my hair is. If you look closely, I can see that I have a beard in my shadow with little, but I can't tell you what color my beard is either. If I turn, you can see I have a nose and you can see I have eye sockets, but again, you can't tell details about me, just purely an outline. 
So it gives you enough information, but not enough to see the full, true self. Boom. The good things to come is the true form. The law was a shadow. It was a shadow of God's holy character in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the entire law for us. So the good thing to come here in this passage is everything that pertains to the kingdom of God. It's Jesus. Because the law is a shadow, it can never, by the things that it was setting out to do, actually accomplish what the reality did accomplish. He asked the question in verse 2. If the law was so good, wouldn't the sacrifices have ceased? Because then the worshipers would have had a clear conscience. But they didn't have a clear conscience. Why is that? Because the blood of bulls and goats could never, ever, ever, ever take away sin. All it could do was by faith in the promises of God put you in a position where God would accept that sacrifice looking forward to the reality of Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection on your behalf. But they could never atone for you. They could never, ever, ever, ever accomplish your salvation. So consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and it was written of me. So when he said this thing above, verse 8, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are all offered according to the law. We might be inclined to think that David here, when he's writing Psalm 40, that he's using good old Jewish parallelism that he does so often when he's preaching or when he's writing a psalm. Right? I mean, he says here, sacrifices, offerings you didn't desire. Burn offerings, sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. But that's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is he's using technical language to teach us that everything that encompassed the Old Testament, all of the law, all that was bound up in the Old, is no longer necessary because it's been accomplished in Jesus Christ. The writer of the psalm, I don't know how well he understood that. <laughs> To be perfectly honest, I don't know if it was one of those things where he was getting this divine inspiration and so he was writing down some of the things that he was thinking and then reading back on them and going, that's some pretty bold language. Or if he really honestly knew and understood, at least to a point, because he was still living in the light of that shadow. That there's something insufficient about sacrifices and all of the offerings that we have available to us. But Christ, it says here, is attributed these words, that when he came into the world, or when he was born into the world, that he came with the understanding 
that all of this was insufficient and that what he came to do was to do God's perfect holy will. In John chapter 5, if you want to look at John 5 with me real quick. As you're turning there, John 5 is the conclusion of a story where Jesus heals that guy next to the pool who can't get himself in there and somebody jumps in ahead of time when the bubbles come, you know. And then the guy picks up his bed and he walks off and the Pharisees say, whoa, 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 it's Sabbath day, dude. You can't be walking around like that with your mat. What are you doing? And so he says, I don't know. A guy just healed me. And told me, take my mat. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick up my mat from Healing Man. So they say to him, well, who said you could get up and do that? I don't know. Some dude just came by and healed me. So then the guy went and found out it was Jesus. Went back to the Pharisees and said, Jesus is the one that did it. And they were like, dig, now but I knew it. Let's go get him. So they went hunting down Jesus, and they found him, and they confronted him, okay? This is where we pick up the story is the Pharisees are confronting Jesus and saying, why are you telling people to do things that's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And hey, second thought, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Namely, healing somebody. So Jesus is responding to them. He says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I don't do anything on my own. I am in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. He goes so far as to say that he hears He judges, and his judgment is right. His judgment is just, that he actually has the authority to pass judgment on people because he is so connected and so united with the Father that his judgment is the Father's judgment. They're in perfect agreement. God itself is crazy, right? (laughs) That's bold. But there's another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me, and it's true. You sent John, and he has bore, you sent to John, and he's bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive from man, but that I say these things to you, that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. But the testimony that I give is so much greater than that of John. For the works that the Father gave me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing. I'm doing the very thing God has sent me to accomplish and to do. And he goes on through the rest of this chapter reiterating that same thought. Me and the Father, we're in perfect agreement. I was sent by the Father, and he is the one who is leading and guiding me. I do nothing on my own. I only do what he leads me to do, and he's the one who leads me in perfect and holy righteousness. And that's what made them so crazy, so crazy they wanted to kill him. Because they understood he was saying he was God in the flesh. 
So back in chapter 10 and verse 9 of Hebrews, he adds, Behold, I have come to do your will. This is from Psalm chapter 40 that he's quoting here. What Psalm 40, according to the writer of Hebrews, was saying, Christ came to absolutely do away with the old in order to establish the new. By the will of the Father, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We've been sanctified. The, the word is technical and maybe a little archaic, but it's the very thing that you need. In in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, um, Paul says this. Brothers, we ask and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received from us how you ought to live and how you ought to walk, how you ought to please God, just as you were doing, and so keep on doing it. Do it even more. For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he goes on to talk about not walking in sexual immorality, but living in holiness. But the point is, is that his will for us is our sanctification. In 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, Paul writes, We should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, who are beloved by God, because God chose you to be saved as the first fruits. And he chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification is the will of God for us. And what that means is that we would become like Christ. As much like him as we can possibly be. That we would, through our lives, not be left in a state of retardation or a state of immaturity. That we would, as we live our lives, be growing and growing and growing, not stunted in our growth and stopped. Remember, that was a big argument back in chapter 5 of Hebrews. What the crap, you guys? You guys should be teaching these things. Instead, I have to come back and say these things all over to you again. Ah, you should be eating meat and you're drinking milk. Right? He's saying to them here, the will of God is for your sanctification in Jesus Christ. You guys have stopped growing somewhere along the line. Now it's time to pick it back up again. Because what are you going to go back to? The law? The law's a shadow. (laughs) It doesn't even do what you think it ought to do, and that's make one righteous. The only place a person can go for righteousness is sanctification in Jesus Christ. That's why it's so much greater. Now, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, there's that word sanctified again. 
But here in these few verses, we see the contrast between the old and the new. The priest stands daily. Christ sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The priest repeatedly offers the same sacrifices over and over. Christ, a single sacrifice for sins. The priest who stands daily offering the same sacrifices can never take away sins. Christ, who with his single sacrifice sat down next to the Father, effectively forgave sins once and for all. Christ is so, so much greater. The law could never do it. It was repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And that in and of itself should have indicated to all of the people under that system, man, this is just insufficient. This is not going, this can't accomplish my own righteousness. And Christ comes and with one offering, he completely and absolutely atones for sins and then sits down at the right hand of the Father, accomplishing or indicating that it's all been accomplished. There's three consequences for sins. This is good. If you're taking notes, this is something you should jot down. Debt, bondage, and alienation. Under the Old Covenant... You have a debt that is required of you by God. When Adam fell into sin, he brought all of humanity down with him. And the debt is our own nature. We can't escape that. It's who we are intrinsically. <laughs> Unless you're going to become some other kind of entity, which is why Christ says you must be born again. Debt requires forgiveness. The debt of the old covenant requires forgiveness. And that's what Christ brings in the new covenant. He brings forgiveness of that old debt. Because he takes that old nature and upon himself and bears the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins that we commit. And for the very nature we have as Rebel sinners against God. The second thing is bondage. Under the old law, you were bound in your sin. You had no ability to free yourself from your sin. The best you could do was by faith go and sacrifice an animal. And you could there in that moment believe that at least everything that you had confessed upon this animal's life was in some sense forgiven you, but you were still bound by your nature and bound by who you were as a person. Bondage requires redemption. That's what Christ did. He came to redeem us from the bondage of our sin. He came to free us. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. The reason we can be free indeed is because sin no longer binds me. And thirdly, sin is the thing which alienates us from God. Now you know this practically in your own lives, right? 
you have somebody who lies to you, sins against you, steals something from you, does you some kind of wrong, there's an alienation there, right? Suddenly that relationship is not what it used to be. And to be perfectly honest, you kind of wonder how it's ever going to be fixed again. And there's people who say, I can't even forgive even if they came in us for forgiveness, right? Well, alienation requires reconciliation. And again, that's what Christ offers here. We see all three of these things taking place here in what Christ did. Christ, he, one time, for, with his own sacrifice, forgave our sins. And in that, his single offering freed us from bondage. He gave us the redemption that we need. And he sat down at the right hand of God, indicating that our alienation was no longer something that separated us from God. And we have been reconciled to him. He's forgiven our debts. He's freed us from the, sin, from the bondage of sin. And he's restored the alienation we've had from the Father. Finally, in verse 15 through verse 18, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, and after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Notice that he here at the very end of his theological argument brings up the Holy Spirit. I think only twice, twice before in the book of Hebrews he's mentioned the Spirit, and I think it was just the Spirit. Here it's the Holy Spirit, and what he's doing is at the very end of his theological argument, he's reminding his Jewish monotheistic audience of the Trinity. And the importance of Jesus being God and the Holy Spirit being God. And that if you go back to anything else, you are abandoning the very God that Scripture teaches and that Scripture shows is the God of creation. We, it, we, we can't, it won't do to muck about with the Trinity. <laughs> there are lots of, lots of, lots of people and organizations and whatnot out there that, just, that, that want to do that. They love to do that. They'll say, no, he's, he's like this, or no, it's like this, and all kinds of different ways. I could say a few, but you know what? I would end up mis- leaving a few out. But people will regularly and routinely mess about with this doctrine. And if you do that, and if you worship a God that is not the God that's revealed as the Trinity in Scripture, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And then I would say to you, like the author of Hebrews does here, why are you doing that? There's nothing better else out there. You are not finding the thing that your soul needs, namely forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation in any other entity or any other God that can be either devised or presented to you as a means of worship. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. Now, he, wit- he bears witness here. He's actually quoting Jeremiah. So the writer of Hebrews is referring to Jeremiah's inspired scripture itself. This is the covenant that I will make with them. And we read this back in chapter 8. 
But the new covenant is so much greater. It is the true form. It's the good things that have come. And the new covenant says that God will put on the people who are under this new covenant new hearts, new minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no reason. At this point, the temple is probably still standing in Jerusalem. They're probably still going daily and sacrificing goats and sheep and ox and doves. There's no forgiveness in that. In fact, there's no forgiveness in any other offering that we can possibly do. There's no penance that we can perform. Not in the sacraments. Not through any of the types of things that even modern evangelical would put forward as a means for you to become more righteous and more holy. Sanctification happens and salvation, I would even say, is included in that word sanctification through Christ's one and singular offering for sins. And then where there's forgiveness, there's no need to go and offer anything anymore. If you've truly been forgiven of your sins, then why in the world would you keep going back and trying to ask for forgiveness? Now, a little bit of me gets it because there's, I have this weird guilt complex that even when I've done something wrong and I've gone to somebody and said, hey, I was wrong and asked for forgiveness, I find myself going back over and over a couple of times going, we're cool, right? Everything's, everything's cool, right? I, I do that, I think, because somewhere along the line, I don't know if it's my parents or somebody I knew growing up or whatnot that I could never please, but there, there has to be something in there like that, right? It's got to be. But I do that. I do that regularly and I do it to the consternation of some people. My boss is one of those people where he'll just say, just stop. Just, it's okay. (laughs) And I'll go, no, 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 I'm sorry. You don't, I'm really sorry. It's, it's okay. You, You don't have to keep coming back and you don't have to keep saying that. Well, we don't have to keep coming back to the Lord and asking for forgiveness. We don't need to go to confession. We don't need to go and get rebaptized. We don't need to go and, and sit down and list out our sins to the pastor. And we don't need to go through all of these things because Christ has dealt with our sin once and for all. And if he has truly dealt with it, then it's forgiven and it's over. And going back and going back over it is just rehashing the same old thing, and God is clearly not pleased with that because we're assuming that his sacrifice isn't complete if we do that. So to close, the Lord has forgiven us of our sins. He's cleansed us of all of our unrighteousness, and we have in him a perfect and complete and total salvation. We have the good things to come. Beloved, don't go looking for anything else. There's nothing else out there There's nothing else better than the person of Jesus Christ in him alone. Lord, we take your word for what it says and we believe it. 
And so when you say that we have been forgiven of our sins and there is no more need for us to offer anything to you, then we believe it. We don't need to dress up to come to church because we're giving you our best. We don't need to do all the kinds of things that people think are going to just get us that much closer to you and make us that much more right. Lord, we're right with you. We're being sanctified by you. So Lord, I pray that we would, as we hear these truths, that it would be freeing for us and not something that we would hold on to and cling to some kind of old religious way of thinking and religious system where we just feel like we have to keep doing and doing and doing and doing. But truly trust that you came, Jesus, to do the will of the Father and that you actually accomplished what you set out to do so that when you say it is finished, it is actually finished, Lord. Thank you and we love you so much in your name. Amen.